anything that's happened before March, I'm not for sure about. Anything that happened yeah. last week, I don't know about, so. I know. L- look at you, living in the present moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's only because I, that's all I have capacity for. Um, yeah. yeah. I spent about two months of quarantine figuring that out and going through every up and down along the way. Yeah. And is it Denzel? Is th- It is. Okay, perfect. I just wanted to make sure. My name's spelt Joel, but you say it Joel. Okay. So just just as an FYI, I get Joel a lot. Oh, I'm... I, I Question, has anyone ever just gotten it right on the first try? Ooh. It's, I think it's rare, but that probably has happened once or twice. Okay. Because that it, must feel, like, really special, when you're like, that is my name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know me. I still feel pretty special, though, just in general, because I feel like people slip up sometimes, and just, it's easy, if you're saying Joel really fast, mm-hmm. it sort of becomes Joel, so I'm always thankful, because I always know who my friends are. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You're like, you, you get me, you... We're, we're yeah. fighting. Apparently, we're fighting if you're calling me Joel. Um, right. <laughs> well, I, I think, I feel like I, so I think I remember maybe talking with you after a show one time and just, like, introducing myself, or I don't know if maybe someone from at the Improv Theater, huge, um, introduced us, but I just remember seeing you perform. I've seen you perform a few times, and that's been so fun so fun. <laughs> um if it was rec- more recent c- covid aside would that have been the show that me and john gebertatos does yes okay yes and you were there was a lot of dancing involved <laughs> that uh, I uh i that does narrow it down but doesn't <laughs> choose one specific show as i make it my personal challenge sometimes to make sure that john keeps moving throughout a scene right i think i, I think the disco ball even came on with the lights uh, i love the disco ball oh. i i think it's such a joy um whenever because as you know i teach classes at huge as well uh, and I have my theater background, and for me, performance is all the elements coming together. It's more than just acting, so uh, whenever I get to, like, tech a showcase, I'm light, I'm a sound effect or two, and if I can use that disco ball, you bet I'm going to use that disco ball. Yeah. I was, I was at a, a POC jam, and I think at one point I was, I was like, in a scene where I was like either being broken up with or breaking up with someone. And then John said, all right, all right, every, pause for a little bit. Tell us how you feel. And then they turned music on, like vibey music. And then the disco ball came out and it was lights that I was having like this emotional, dramatic, romantic breakdown because my lover was leaving me. I love that. Uh, <laughs> and that I was also my love first the old timey version of lover um it feels very 90s of you uh my my lover and me um i love referring to my exes as like my ex lovers 
I think it just it conveys so much more. <laughs> it's very soap opera of you. It's like, oh, uh, I guess they must have switched bodies with someone at some point. Uh, and the drama is real. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, those are such, like, special times, and I, like, it's funny that you mentioned that's the way that John would approach um, a jam or helping people come out of their shells. Uh, He's very much the type that's like, tell me how you feel, Um, and sort of in contrast, I'd rather you just do the whole scene, and then afterwards, I'll I'll just critique you. I'm a trial by fire kind of guy, and he's very much like, I'll help you across the water. Um, so when we're together, there's uh, like a danger and a support level to the way that we play. So yeah. it feels like you're, we're always like bungee jumping, but we're like, the rope will never break. Uh, let's go higher, let's jump further. Um, you know what that is, Denzel? That's synergy right there. The it is. Synergy. It is. Um, it's. It's been such a wild time uh, to where we are with Brother Brother right now. Because John, when I graduated from St. Olaf College, I came up to the cities, I stayed, I shared a studio apartment with someone because we both didn't know how adulting worked, um, if you choose to use that word, or just being 22 and trying to figure out living situations. And I was like, I need friends. And I did improv in college and that's how I found a lot of good friends. So I decided to do improv in the cities and I took a beginning summer intensive at huge and my teachers were John and Jill Uh, and that was amazing and that's the first time I met him and he's been family ever since really yeah that's amazing um and then I was curious too so did you start doing improv you said you had a background in theater but you Mm -hmm. started improv in college yes okay yeah, so, um, yeah, I started doing, like, a lot of theater around 10th grade, and then I was, like, I'm hooked. I also had been doing other sort of performancey things, like mock trial, um, but what I love, I love the world of performance, uh, and I wanted to learn about it, so I, with the good graces of my mom, after she asked me multiple times, am I sure I don't want to be a lawyer? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to get my degree in theater. I went off to St. Olaf's College from Seattle, Washington to Northfield, Minnesota. And I studied theater there. Um, I learned a lot. I went through the gambit, but one of my best performing opportunities and just really connected me into my love of performance was when I started improv my freshman year. In an attempt to make friends, I knew one person um, kind of well at the school, uh, I ran into her and I was like, what are you up to? She's like, I'm gonna go to this improv thing. And I was like, what's that? She explained it to me. I was like, oh, I bet I could do that. Um, and technically you can, uh, yeah. you can suck for a year and a half, which is very much my case. Yeah. I love um, the question, what's improv? <laughs> and <laughs> it's like the variety of responses that are possible to that question. Yeah, it's so interesting because I've, uh, there are some people who I've worked with really well who understand that when I say improv is like stupid, um, I I use, stupid's one of the best words I use in a class, um, mainly because the way that our world builds us as adults has put up so many different walls. 
that to channel pure stupidity and pure joy and fun is one of the hardest things to do as a performer. Uh, so if I, if I look at a scene, I'm like, that was just stupid. Uh, that's a big compliment from me. Um, yeah. If it's awful for other reasons, I'll just call it out and be like, mm, I would never call a racist scene stupid. I would just call it racist. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think one of the hardest things to do is like effortless stupidity. Yeah. Yeah. And I've noticed that like when, when it just happens naturally and it doesn't feel like it's being forced. Um, I mean, that's, so I'm a very, I'm a new improviser and it's probably been a year and a half since I've started. Um, and it's been so good for me. I have not really a theater background or anything. I was in It's a Wonderful Life in high school. And then I was in one other play at some point. Um, but improv has just been like a really cool outlet for me. And I think sort of connecting it to what I'm trying to do with this podcast also, I think in a lot of ways, improv was a space for me to experience a sense of freedom that I think in, in a lot of ways, I think I don't always experience. And I think there were some like, uh, as a, as a, first generation immigrant and a person of color I think for me not every space always feels safe and comfortable and I think improv has just been an amazing venue for me to sort of find my voice but to also feel like people are with me I mean I remember this one time um, when I first started improv when I heard laughter in class I felt really hurt because I felt like people were laughing at me. Like for some reason it was triggering some, something in me. And someone just very kindly told me, Hey, we're, we're not laughing at you. We're, we're laughing with you. And I mean, there, it's like the classic at versus with thing, but to hear that from someone to like vocalize, Hey, we're laughing with you was just such an amazing, uh, profound thing for me because it sort of was just a good reminder for me to to find myself and to sort of live in that and I I'm, I'm, guess I'm curious for you like so for me I think that intersection of like improv and maybe stupidness as you would call it or like just letting loose but also finding your voice in a world that um, is sometimes hard for me to find my voice in and then thinking about social justice um, what has your uh, journey looked like when you think about the intersection of your identities in a space like improv? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I'll just start off with, like, me and my intersectionalities as a Black queer person. Like, any room I step into is a political move. Um, so in that regard, I think sometimes social justice gets a little, like, verbized, if you will, and it becomes this thing that has to look a particular way. Social justice looks like marches, social justice looks like, you know, protests, social justice looks like, you know, like, establishing letter writing campaigns, and I don't think that's always the case, because it is working towards something and 
one of the things that you mentioned a few times that I think it purposely campuses it is that it's about like having that voice, feeling heard, um, knowing that people are listening. And my journey through as a performer and as an artist, uh, especially as a person who focuses in comedy, I have learned the power of being able to be heard. And it, it doesn't surprise me uh, that the first time you hear laughter in a room as a brown body, that's not the association where you're like, yes, I, of course, that must be a positive thing for me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you do have to be like, especially if you're not used to performance in that sort of like stagey way, like essentially someone has to tell you, you were doing something and I was responding to it in the way that you wanted me to. Yeah. Well, and, and going, going into improv, I didn't, I didn't even think that that space was able to undo some forms of oppression. Like I, I would not have expected that. So I think for me, that was a little surprising too, to be like, Oh, I actually feel some liberation here. And that was kind of a, a fun new thing for me. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm so glad you felt that way. Um, I know that Huge Theater has been really working hard on making those safe spaces, but I would be remiss to not mention that there have been some really big established theaters that are now under major heat um, in the light of recent tragic events that now like, you know, the Second City and IO, two big um, improv institutions came under intense fire from their community being like, we aren't being seen, we aren't being heard. There is this underlying level of oppression that has been happening. And, you know, the catalyst for these people speaking has been, I think, groundbreaking. And I feel like it was the Second City first that sort of like, all these like black and brown bodies were like, this has been happening. And then that led to sort of more and more discussion. I think people who experience HUGE, particularly POCs who first experience HUGE are very fortunate. Uh, especially if you've done it within the past like two years, you came into a theater with a diversity and inclusion person already there um, in an already like small team. So in this like splicing of it all, John, uh, who is my duo partner, but also the diversity and inclusion person at HUGE does carry a significant weight and is not just sort of siloed. Um, I know I teach at HUGE, there's um, instructors of color, there are shows that have performers of color there. Um, you know, is it the most representative of everything? No, but is it some of the more diverse improv stages I have seen, absolutely. Uh, so it, yeah. it really does warm my heart, first and foremost, to know that like improv, with all these tools that can be used in those ways, you have experienced it, even within your one and a half years of um, sort of into the improv journey. Yeah, and I'd be curious too, I, I, it's actually news to me that you're a teacher, because I don't think I was aware of that. But I think as a teacher and I think as an improviser yourself, um, how do you see improv and theater being a tool to bring about 
justice and change and, and what has that looked like for you? Yeah, I, I focus a lot on like the individual impact and how that like plays into a team effort. So if I were like somewhere within like the social justice world, if this was like an army, I'd be like a trainer, if you will. Um, I, I think in order, when we see the people who are leading the forefront for social change, um, even within sort of like individualized communities, um, for instance, I'm a huge, uh, I'm learning more and more about like the drag race communities, um, within Repulse Drag Race, but also just like in the respective towns and the Chicago drag scene has come under immense fire, um, for the way that they've been treating. And some of those leaders are very prominent people in those communities leading the charge, but they also know themselves at this point, right? These are people who are outspoken. These are queens like Shea Coulee and the Vixen who are both a part of the RuPaul Drag Race thing, but who are unapologetically who they are. And for both of them, they're very unapologetically black and they will raise uh, an eyebrow, if not a fist, um, at the idea that, like if someone's calling that into question. Yeah. But that takes you feeling comfortable with yourself. Yeah. And I often teach a 201 class. So it's people who are interested in improv. I I can teach an introduction to improv class, but that there are people who are better at it than I am. Um, what I'm good at is being like, cool, you like this. Um, so I don't need to convince you. Now let's start removing the barriers. Let's start removing the walls. Let's start getting at who you are in this particular context. So a lot of times my improv advice sounds like good life advice. Um, I remember very clearly working with a young gentleman in class. He was doing scenes and I had been sort of observing a trend in his scene work. And uh, after a scene was done, I was like, hey, I feel like time and time again, we don't get to know your characters. Hmm. And I'll be blunt, the sense I'm getting is that you don't like yourself, and that's why everything's about other people. Um, And I was like, I know it's bold, I know it's brash, but like, take that in. And he's like, I don't care for focus to be on me. I don't, like, and he, he shared with us in the safe space that we had created that he wasn't particularly, you know, at peace with himself. And yeah. I'm like, I feel that struggle within the way that you're, you know, pretending to be an ice cream man, right? Yeah. Um, so it, it feels weird, hokey, like I'm Oprah, but there's so many times where I can watch a show and or be in class and be like oh this feels off oh these people aren't listening to each other and that's why they can't progress forward um if you're trying to organize a group to do something if you're not listening to each other you're not going to progress forward so why i feel like i don't have necessarily like the skills or expertise to be like sort of at the forefront of a big social justice movement such as black lives matter myself i feel like I could step into a room of people who are motivated for that and I could be like, cool, let me give you some tools to be the best possible you. 
through improv and people would be like what how isn't improv just that silly thing uh you know whose line is it anyways and i'll be like well give me two hours and i'm gonna show you what we can do and that's where i find joy that's where i find my invigoration anytime i see people just sort of take up all those barriers that we build consciously and unconsciously in life to be a frankly a functioning adult in a dysfunctional world if you give them the space and you give them the tools to be like but here's how to unlock you and you can i want you to have those tools so you can do it whenever you can bring it into your life um you can bring it just to this stage but i want you to know that you have these tools i want you to know how you can use them and then you get to determine when or when not to use those tools yeah totally and i i I was just i was noticing what you said before with having that individual approach it made it made me think about something with how oftentimes it is very difficult for dominant white culture to acknowledge systemic or patterns of um microaggressions patterns of oppression I think oftentimes for recipients of microaggressions and people who experience race on a daily basis, um, we see those connections are a lot more prevalent and that they form structures. And it's, I love the, that connection because I think individuals form structures. And I think in the same way, a structure has influence on an individual. So I think in reaching out to individuals and in creating spaces where individuals feel empowered, that is a way to bring about change at a systemic level. Um, and so, yeah, it, I think it's just incredible to hear that, um, that you're able to sort of do some of that type of work. Um, I'm curious for you and, and sort of your development, like, what has your experience of liberation been? And um, I, what have you learned along the way about finding your voice and speaking your truth, um, especially with the identities that you mentioned that you hold? Yeah, I uh, I love that you ask these like big weighty questions. Uh, <laughs> They're it, so broad. I love like, it. I love a good broad thing. Uh, I think it's whether consciously or not a mentality that i have been fortunate enough to be in a place to embrace uh has been the idea shonda rhimes who is like this big you know executive producer writer you know she's Grey's anatomy she's how to get away with murder she's scandal um she wrote a book called the year of yes and it came out of a time where uh, she felt a little stagnant in her career. And I feel like it was like her y- young daughter had noticed that she often says no to a lot of things. Um, and that in that sense, she was holding herself back. Uh, so for a year, she said yes to just about everything. Um, you know, still being safe, not putting anyone really at risk, but she really just took on opportunities. And for me, that was something that was like oddly powerful because as, particularly as a black man growing up, I learned how to be very calculated, very cap- like, uh, like very 
certain about the way that I presented things. Yeah. And that does me well, for instance, as a theater director, because I always have innately a paid attention to details, right? I, I can wear this shirt with these pants and not look like a threat. Um, but I know that this combination, according to societal standards at this time, makes me dangerous, makes me um, fun. Uh, you know, I've always been that. And to a degree, oddly enough, uh, and I just was talking with like a friend yesterday about all of this, where I was like, oh, I think, oh, I was not a friend. I was talking to my therapist about this yesterday. Um, <laughs> It'd be great. Uh, boundaries, Denzel. Boundaries. There are boundaries. Uh, <laughs> I just like to know everything about everyone. Um, but I was talking with my therapist about sort of the ways that I used my queerness, especially like in college, as a safe thing to sort of like soften my blackness, um, so to speak. So uh, I felt like with like my the like non-white community at St. Olaf, I could really speak and sort of just be my authentic self. But if I had to express something about my personality, like with like the majority of the campus, which um, would be white, I could express like a queerer side. Um, and that was not only sort of like more acceptable, so to speak, um, depending on who you ran with. I ran with yeah. theater kids. Um, but it softened me out as sort of a black male. So I wasn't that, yeah. just that black guy. I was that black guy who, you know, dated guys and girls, uh, you know? <laughs> so I, there was something just not as Hollywood scary about me as a six foot one black guy who was growing out his hair and eventually got it dreaded. Um, yeah. And what a, what a blow to the patriarchy too. Um, and, and I think expectations for masculinity. Um, I was reflecting on my college experience as well for one of my courses in gender studies. And something that stood out to me was a similar idea to what you're mentioning with how I think my expression of masculinity was perceived to be effeminate and within uh, sort of dominant masculine narratives that are harmful I was perceived maybe to be effeminate or gay or whatever, what was sort of not within the norm within a white patriarchal society. And I remember my RA telling me to find more friends who are men. Um, and there's all these interesting ways in which that showed up. But I think the interesting piece too was um, people would also say, well, Joel's not from here. So he's from, He's not from the United States, so we can expect him to be a little more effeminate. And there's like an interesting way in which dominant culture can often like ostracize you as a way to try to wrap their minds around who you are or what's going on. And it, I mean, it left me feeling more misunderstood, um, but I'm also thinking about just the intersection that you're describing is so nuanced and unique and it's a, it's a really cool perspective to hear as you're talking. Yeah, uh, well, first of all, uh, 
an RA telling any student something that big <laughs> is such a fucking power trip. Um, yeah. And says so much more about that person than it does about you. Um, yeah. Like, that person needs a hug and, like, <laughs> a solid male friendship, um, clearly. Uh, I mean, it's a, part of, it's a part of why I'm, I'm, so my field is student affairs primarily in higher ed. Oh. And so that's a part of, I think, these nuances I'm hoping to really take into higher education with me so that, you know, if I interact with students who are feeling some of those tensions, I think I can share some of my own experience as a way to empower people. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, and I think what you're getting at, too, is just like the binary world we live in. Um, right. and, and the dualism in that, too, you know, the expectations of queerness, the expectations of racial identity or manliness and it's it's really fucked up and it you just see the ways in which it makes people so restricted and Mm -hmm. i think something i i just feel felt so passionate about is like liberation for all people and that's sort of what some of these conversations are dedicated to um and so yeah i'm curious like do you did you perceive that duality or some of the binary showing up in, in your experience that you referenced? Um, I think it's sort I as you were speaking, I was thinking um, roughly in those same minds. And it reminds me of like the classic phrase, you need to know the rules to break them. So I think I sort of went through like three stages. I had to learn how the world perceived, particularly like my, like me as a black man, me as a like queer man and then me as a black queer man um and i probably came to that like understanding around sophomore year um needless to say freshman sophomore year were probably some hot mess a lot of tears a lot of sad standing in pools of light alone in the middle of the night uh, because i'm what dramatic uh but by like junior year i sort of knew how to play this game right so then I could use it sort of to my advantage, um, which is not to say that like everything I did was probably the most like wholesome, um, but it wasn't criminal. But it was that weird like, oh, I could, I could easily make friends with a room because I sort of knew how to be perceived in a way that would be deemed like friendly and yeah. well, you've got to talk with the black kid because it'd be weird if you didn't. And, you know, I could have all these things. And then when I sort of understood how to use my ownness, then I was like, okay, I get all these elements. Now, what is the combination that works best for me? How do I want to present myself? Yeah. Um, and like, I would say I got to a point like senior year where, well, first of all, it's senior year. What a fucking power trip. Uh, yeah. But I, I felt like I really understood myself. Um, then and then I graduated and went into a bigger world and sort of stepped back and it was sort of it was through like my performance particularly because that was my main thing my outlet and frankly my like my degree that the more I sort of was in the world 
the more I learned about it, the more I was able to utilize it. And then the more I was able to figure out what was best for me. So I feel like I'm at a point now in this uh, world of Minneapolis improv and sketch where I know me and I am always learning and growing, but I'm, I'm editing a really polished draft of a book as opposed to working on individual chapters, maybe scrapping something wholesale. I'm, and that's not to say that like, there is a part of me that I can sit down and like realize I'm like, oh, that's not good. Um, I know I had to check certain like biases that I had um, that were sort of weirdly like prejudice, uh, particularly towards like white America. Um, and I always jokingly say, um, <laughs> I learned that like white people can suffer uh, <laughs> because growing yeah. up. That's, as... that's a great little bit, by the way. I like, yeah, that's a great bit. <laughs> um, I learned in the grand scheme of things, like, of course, why, why, why wouldn't that be the case? But growing up, like, as a black person and always hearing these heroic efforts of white America and everything, it never made sense why a white person wouldn't be at the top of their game. And I always perceived them to be wherever level they're at, they're doing their 100%. Um, and then I like, I had the opportunity to have like hard conversations with like white men who were vulnerable in some way. And, you know, would talk about like family issues and like actually go into it. Or sometimes you would catch um, the off cusping where it's like, I know I had a friend uh, and we were working on a project together and it was like, we were supposed to have discussions about like something we talked about with our parents. And I was like, oh, I have this great thing about my mom teaching me about my hair. And he's like, well, I'm struggling because I didn't really have conversations with my parents. And I was like, I, I was like shook and I was like, that, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, yeah. I think I would be a whole different person and very like shaken by that fact. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, if I, if I would, why wouldn't he? And I was like, oh, that's, that's like something that you're reckoning with. Like yeah. you have a, a family thing that's like and it's it's interesting. It's interesting how we can like idolize different privileged identities, I think. And then also I like thinking of them as like oppressed identities and privileged identities, and you can add from either um group. And I think we're all combinations of different identities in that way. But I'm resonating with what you're saying in terms of like having a colonized history and and thinking about this lotion in India where I lived that's called Fair and Lovely. And the idea is that you apply this lotion to appear to have lighter skin. And that's just an example of how ingrained some of this desire to be white is. And then when you wake up one day and you meet a white person who is having a hard time, you go, oh, I, I, I thought your life was perfect. I thought you didn't have any struggles. I thought you could just do anything you wanted to do. 
Um, and I, I don't think white people need empathy. Like, I think, I think for sure, like, historically oppressed people are deserving of attention and empathy and to have the narrative centered on them. But I definitely resonate with that, what you're talking about with this eye-opening moment of, oh, like, this isn't just, like, a black and white thing with my life not being really great, but their life must be perfect. And it's, I think life is just so much more complex um, and sophisticated than sometimes even the binary world that we think we live in. Right. And I think for me, knowing that sort of, it changed the game. And again, it brought that complexity where, like, frankly, it, it doesn't serve the advantage of, like, sort of, like, my the people I know who are white learning this because I was like oh that also means that like the oppression that's happened wasn't just done by like wickedness that it is like everything is sort of learned and taught and like is a system that happens um which is uplifting in the idea that's like if it's a system that's built that means it can be torn down and built again but it's it's far more nefarious than a Disney villain who's just pure evil. It is, you can see how calculated it was. And I was just listening to a podcast today and even the efforts to distance ourselves from like uh, earlier civil rights things to the way that if you notice a lot of pictures of Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. are in black and white. And that ages it to a further idea. That makes it feel like it happened closer to 1900 and not like really 60, 70 years ago. Um, it feels, it's so much more closer than we think. And all these things are so much more at hand, which again, on the, Bright side of it, sorry. Um, there's an ant right here, and oh, I'm no. just gonna kill it. Boop, I boop, wish boop, I could boop. see you, but I know it's also like on my counter. So, what you would have seen is me looking down, been like, nope. Um, <laughs> but I think there's a fly go in my room, I can hear it buzzing <laughs> from time to time. So, you're not alone with the insects and <laughs> creatures. Yeah, I think what I need to do is just do a deep clean of. Um, my spare room uh, where my off my office is uh, but all that being said I yeah learning how calculated these things are and frankly the bluntness of the racism of the south which my mom grew up with at at a point and of course blowing this like out of proportion and not meaning it feels more comforting if it was blatant than the sort of systematic under like cutting thing that we experience in the north and i'm from seattle um went to minnesota i know northern culture and northern culture is smart quiet and wicked um hmm. it it can you know you could wake up and change could happen in any direction and you wouldn't even know it's happening uh and <laughs> again it's great be but also like, terrible Right. I don't like, know how to feel about that. Exactly. Like, 
it's and we're seeing it now with you know all these different um particularly like white women who are on camera who are like you know um faking a 911 attack from a, a black man who's yeah just existing or being like leash your dog ma'am this is a park where you need to leash your dog um and then you know particularly with that example of amy cooper yeah she identifies as a liberal and has voted as such and i'm like that that's not that is surprising to some it's not surprising to others depending on where you're yeah. at with this understanding karen um, karen's can be liberal too yeah and i think we get so, and I I'll, I could always go off on sort of the sensationalism um, effect I feel like our media has faced. Yeah. Um, one of the things I studied at State Olaf was media studies, um, where I learned the way that you make people perceive things is everything, especially in today's world. Um, photography and sort of quick photography changed the way we viewed war. Um, which is like baffling to like look into those sort of things. But I think a very powerful tactic that has been used that you see within any sort of media personally, and I'll, I'll throw out some controversial opinions um, that are lighter Wait, than political. Spice, spice this podcast. Yeah. Um, so, like people like to be sensationalized it, it's it's like a genetic response it's the flashing lights of a casino um and in sort of a lighter way i think that's why shows like game of thrones can get away with literal millions of murder right i think if we broke down game of thrones would it be as strong of a show if it wasn't for the the graphics the effects the uh you know, the, the way that they shot the Red Wedding. Not to delegitimize those things, but is the arc of the story that so many people are like, that's why I'm watching it. Is that really the reason why you're watching it? Or are you watching it because it's a pretty gorgeous, violent experience? And it's the way that we track news. And not only the way we track it, it's the way, as someone who works in a newsroom myself, the way that people expect you to track news. Yeah. Um, they want to know about that sensational story. Um, people want to know about Trump's tweets. And there is, you can be in your bubble, um, like, and I call it like the education bubble. That's like, why are we paying attention to that? But people want to know about these things. And that's what, and people will give money to those things. And newsrooms are very much at a disadvantage point based off of the way, like, the financial structure that has happened to them. And I believe it truly has happened to news. Um, and news has had to become more entertaining. Uh, and we sort of saw this with uh, the Colbert Report and um, the Daily Show. When those popped, that became, for so many people, their main source of news. Yeah. Um, so everything sort of has to have that sort of, like, interest, that pulling factor when it used to just be here are the facts laid out and people would pick up the newspaper and they're like i learned something now it's not just i learned something it's like i learned something through an invigorating story yeah um, i mean it explains tiktok i think in some ways yeah i feel like i mean i mean the when you're talking about the the karens who are on their phone 
you know, calling the cops on a black man. Like there are videos on TikTok that have informed me about like literally that is happening in the video and it's a short minute long video. So that's a, that's a really interesting observation with how like journalism and how I, I think our access to news in in the fact that I can take a video and my my video is news and I can publish that and other people can view it. I think, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, uh, I, I think context that we're living in. Um, yeah. and, and just sort of um, kind of to wrap up at the end here, I, mm -hmm. it's been a weird few weeks. I, um, I think we've acknowledged that a little bit, um, but I'm something I like to think about is the word hope. And I, acknowledging all the shit that goes on in the world. And I think especially for people who hold multiple oppressed identities, um, I don't expect anyone to hold on to hope. Um, I often don't feel hopeful, but I like to sort of bring up the topic, um, not necessarily to ask about what you hope in or like what you're looking forward to with moving ahead, but just more about like, what does that word trigger for you? But then also, as we think about liberation and moving forward, um, what might be helpful um, for us to to continue fighting for liberation? I think, like, when I think of a lot of times, like the sort of like charge of the word and therefore like in the person. And I'm thinking like literally like positive or negative charge, right? And for one to have hope, you have to have positive charge in your life. And I think what so often happens is we, we have to experience a lot of these negative charges. Um, you know, you have to learn about these things. I, I can't avoid what happened to George Floyd. Um, I, I need to under, I need to, see that's happening in the world. I don't need to see that video, but I need to see that's happening in the world. Um, and that by nature will be a negative charge on me. I think the issue becomes when the only thing a person or their identities are facing are negative charges. And I think some people really in the process of learning um, don't realize the impact of that. Um, and I think for me, I, again, as someone who's like professional, makes people think and laugh kind of guy, um, there's so much unacknowledged power in positive examples, joy that we always forget. And I feel like we're told that like people need positive examples, but the way that we educate often is in negative examples. Um, like I can't tell you and I posted something on Juneteenth where I was like, if you are motivated more by Black trauma than Black success, you're a part of the problem. And I think that applies everywhere, even to like my, my Black orgs out there. If you're not acknowledging the fact that like people, like Black people are awesome at the same time as you're like, and are being treated in this horrific manner, you're choosing a narrative and no one wants to just be the whipping boy. I don't want my narrative to yeah. be 
I'm the type of person that gets killed by the police. And that's what everyone's telling me. And the system is constantly rigged against me. How does that motivate me to do better when all I hope for is a neutral feeling? All that my best case in that situation is for me just to survive? That doesn't, that puts me at a weird numb stasis. Yeah. And, it, and like using those, the negative motivation is interesting because I feel like if I'm reflecting on my own self as a non-Black POC, mm-hmm. I think sometimes it's sort of like, oh, I'm a noble person. Like I'm a good person because I like care about the, about Black trauma. But I, I love what you're saying about flipping it around because um, it's not about me. It's not about, you know, noble ideas or good things it's the fact that we should be horrified that this is happening and that um black men are being murdered and our police system is so uh corrupted and the i think that motivation piece is is such a good switch for me personally and i think for others to think about like i want to be motivated not only when bad shit happens like i want to I want to have good shit in mind um, and to think about like that should be the driving force. Cause I think honestly, I think it actually makes it about the targets and the victims who have oppressed identities. I think that's really who the focus becomes on mm-hmm. when we think about some of the, I, I like the positive charges idea that you mentioned, as opposed to if it's just based on the negative charges and negative trauma then it's really about me being a good person. And it's actually taking away focus and attention um, from people who need the attention the most. Yeah, and like, I think we all experience it, but we just don't necessarily like put it to words. Like, for instance, you're going into student affairs. Would you be able to go into student affairs with if all you learned was that the system is broken, the system is broken, the system is broken? Or did you have a good experience, maybe a different RA or something along the line that sort of led you to know <laughs> yeah. that there is like a way of positivity, right? Yeah. Like, I feel like no one can really go at it and be a hundred percent themselves if they don't see that success. And that's why it's those people who have built those bridges. That's why they're so remarkable. Yeah. Because they didn't see that, and yet somehow they survived, right? But if you have someone who's surviving, you want the next people not just to survive, you want them to thrive. So I look to people, even in my own life, in my own motivation, where I'm in this newsroom, the world's so heavy, I don't want to write, I don't, why would I do that? Why? And then I see people like Issa Rae, um, who does smart, innovative comedy work, um, but it's not just like <laughs> sort of comedy. It's smart um, and memorable. I see new stand-ups like Jay Jordan. Um, he'd probably kill me if he knew I called him new um, because he's been at the game for a while, but he recently released an album and he is a black queer man like myself. He's way more fit, but he's <laughs> like the type of jokes I would write, he writes. And I'm like, that shows that there's a place for me in stand-up 
um, not only as just a Black person, but at the intersection of Black and queer, um, the Joel Kim boosters of the world, the Bowen Yangs of the world, where it's like, you can be POC and queer and funny on a big scale. Um, and again, uh, supporting everyone else, I feel energized by someone like Bowen Yang, even though I'm not Asian, right? Yeah. Because I know what he's doing matters and counts, and I can channel that to a degree for myself. And I can be motivated by people who don't just look like me. Of course, it's always a little bit sparklier when it is someone like you doing the thing. But I think remembering that joy, remembering someone who was in your same situation, um, you know, uh, not to put words in your mouth, but like, you know, different sort of first immigrant stories, you know, first generation immigration stories mean something right and you're like oh sure they may not have immigrated exactly from where i'm from but they came here yeah it's fucking different and they did something and that's yeah. cool and i can translate that to me it's empowering and, yeah it's yeah. the commonality or the idea of common ground especially for people with oppressed identities when they can find um when they can see some of the trauma in another person and understand attempt to understand that because of their own experiences, that can be a very helpful thing. And I think we're getting to a point, finally, where um, I think as the non-dominant culture, we have been sort of ingrained in ourselves that we need to look at dominant culture, you know, white male figures who are heroic, and we need to learn and be inspired by them. And I think we're finally at a time where we can demand that that needs to be flipped and that yeah. there should be no reason why that little white boy can't be inspired by like that powerful black woman on the yeah. screen um just yeah, like absolutely. we have been told to be inspired by the accomplishments of so many great uh white americans yeah absolutely denzel this was amazing um yeah. so good